This afternoon session is titled Sleep and Pain, Friends or Foes. And this afternoon we're joined by our faculty, Dr. Heather King, pain psychologist at Stanford Pain Clinic, along with Dr. Fiona Barwick, a sleep psychologist at Stanford Sleep Clinic. So without further ado, I will hand it over to our faculty. Thank you. I'm a little nervous giving a talk about pain and sleep after lunch. <laughs> so if we see any dips, we'll have to. There is something called a circadian dip, which most people experience sometime after lunch in the afternoon. So if you do find yourself feeling a little dozy or sleepy, that is perfectly normal. It's, it's not because we're boring. <laughs> we hope. That's what she meant. So we have no, nothing to disclose. Today we are going to be talking about, first we're just going to review some definitions and consequences of chronic pain and insomnia. Then we're going to talk about the relationship between these two conditions, including uh, the role of circadian rhythms. We're going to discuss circadian and cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain and insomnia. And finally, we're going to talk about research outcomes that have focused on combining or integrating CBT protocols for treating uh, these conditions. And I just wanted to start off giving you a little bit of history. Um, so Fiona and I started, I guess, collaborating approximately two years ago. We met to discuss how we could um, sort of advance our fellowships. Uh, so Fiona's part of the sleep center, so she has a, a sleep medicine fellow, and I have a pain. I have the pain medicine fellows. So we started off just you know, talking about the comorbidity between chronic pain and insomnia. And that's sort of evolved over the past two years into us working more collaboratively together on, we've developed a program called All About Pain and Sleep, where we're co-treating patients that have insomnia and chronic pain. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of our talk, but um, it's been really fun. <laughs> yeah, I think Heather and I have uh, enjoyed the collaboration in part because there's such strong overlap in our patient populations. I'm sure that's no surprise to anyone in this room. Um, there's also a lot of overlap in the treatment techniques we use because we are psychologists, so we definitely use cognitive behavioral techniques. Uh, and then we definitely enjoy working with each other. So it's been a win-win-win all around. And I've been dragging her to different pain <laughs> conferences across the United States, so. And that's been fun. <laughs> so I wanna start off by just talking about is all pain bad? And of course the answer is no. We know that at least acute pain has a survival purpose. Without it, we probably wouldn't make it very long. We learn from you know, touching a hot stove that that's not something that you'd wanna do again. So this, this pain response that we have is, is all about survival and highly functional. The same goes for sleep disturbance. Sleep disturbance in the short term, what's known as acute insomnia, is actually normative. It is an adaptive response to stress. We, like all species, are subject to stress, and if we were not able to modify our sleep needs based on those demands, the demands of our circumstances, we probably would not have survived. The reason we put a picture of a killer whale up here <laughs> is because, as I mentioned, adaptation to circumstance, sleep adaptation to circumstance, is a normal response to stress. So killer whales have to migrate with their young, their defenseless young, for weeks at a time through shark-infested waters. As you can imagine, they get very little sleep during this weeks-long period. Does that affect their ability to arrive at their destination? It does not. The same is true for white crown sparrows that reduce their sleep need by two-thirds for months at a time as they migrate, or dolphins that can keep themselves awake for 24 hours at a time for two weeks straight with no impairment in performance. 
There's no way we would have become one of the most successfully adaptive species on the planet if we needed to get our sleep when the saber-toothed tiger entered our cave. So sleep disturbance in the short term is actually uh, normative. We should have a picture of a graduate student up there. <laughs> so we know that short-term insomnia and acute pain are not problematic. So in the acute phases, it's not an issue. Our harm alarm system goes off appropriately. So this would be like if you have a fire alarm in your home and your house is burning down, you want the fire alarm to go off because it's going to alert you, hey, you need to get out of here, this is dangerous. So this would be the equivalent to you know, insomnia in the acute phase or chronic pain in the acute phase. But what happens is over time with chronic pain that all of a sudden the fire alarm is going off when you've burnt toast. The alarm is real, but the function doesn't make sense anymore. It's not helpful. The house isn't burning down. And over time, as chronic pain becomes more of a problem, then it's not just your burnt toast, it's the neighbors and down the block, that that harm alarm system becomes oversensitized. And it becomes oversensitized with pain because it's no longer signaling damage to the system. With sleep, it's no longer signaling a stressor you need to worry about. What happens is acute insomnia turns to chronic insomnia, is the worry about the stressor that's been keeping you awake at night has now shifted to worry about sleep. A biological system that I can guarantee you is intact for you and would not be a problem if you just stopped worrying about it. <laughs> sort of like sleep last night. <laughs> so we all know the definition of chronic pain, that it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. And I think you know, a lot of the treatments that we have for chronic pain are really focused on the sensory aspect, right? How to reduce that, the experience of pain. But what is less focused on and equally as important are the, these cognitive and emotional factors in how we think about our pain, how we respond to our pain, and the emotional consequences of living with chronic pain. And we know that it's not just the physical pain that's a problem. Having pain is one thing, but the emotional suffering that goes along with having pain is what people are coming in and talking about, right? My sleep is disrupted. I'm spending more time at the doctor's office than I ever would have imagined and certainly would ever have wanted to. It leads to family stress. It doesn't just affect the person who has it. It affects every person around them. Maybe they can't work or go to school or do things that are important to them. They tend to isolate, and it absolutely rocks their foundation of who am I, certainly if it interferes with their function. So, you know, this is really the consequence of chronic pain or what we call the chronic pain syndrome. It's not just the experience of pain, the 7 out of 10. It's how it bleeds into everything in their life that becomes part of the problem. Similar to chronic pain, chronic insomnia has... Uh these three components as well. A sensory component, in this case sleep, a cognitive component similar to pain which is attentional. Now of course chronic pain uh, bleeds, up, bleeds out attentional resources. So does insomnia. If you are losing sleep because of fragmented sleep, because you're awake due to pain, then you're going to have less ability to focus, less ability to concentrate. There's also of course that emotional component, less fear-based as it is with pain and more anxiety-based. The anxiety is around your ability to sleep. Uh, nonetheless, these three components, the sensory, the cognitive, and the emotional, are the components that we typically are able to target with cognitive behavioral techniques. 
And as with, as with uh, chronic pain, there are definitely negative long-term consequences for the fragmented sleep, the sleep disturbance that occurs with chronic pain. There are a lot of different phenotypes for insomnia. We don't really understand them all, but certainly a phenotype, an insomnia phenotype that is based on anxiety is going to look a little different than an insomnia phenotype that's based on pain, which is going to in turn look a little different than an insomnia phenotype that's, delayed, that's based on delayed sleep phase. With chronic pain, the phenotype seems to be one of fragmented sleep, what they call microarousals. So people spend more time in light stages of sleep, less time in deep stages of sleep, and they have more transitions between sleep stages. So they are losing sleep. They would otherwise be getting if the pain were optimally treated um, or not there at all. Some of the consequences include not just more pain, if you have disturbed sleep at night, we'll talk about that in more detail in a moment, but uh, delayed reaction time, less ability to concentrate, focus, as we just talked about, which in turn means less ability to remember things you were trying to, to learn. That can lead to increased risk for accidents and errors. And on the physical side of things, there's increased inflammation and the conditions that go along with that, like hypertension, diabetes, um, increased cardiovascular risk, and increased morbidity and mortality. So we want to explore the sort of comorbidity or the overlap in, in the experience of these conditions. We know that up to 88% of patients that have chronic pain also experience insomnia. I was somewhat surprised at that number only because I thought it would be higher. If I see someone in a clinic that has, well, everyone I see has chronic pain, but if they actually say, yeah, my sleep is great, I'm like, really? I want to send them to like our research uh, lab and be like, please study this person because this is so abnormal. I mean, it's just, it co-occurs so frequently. Yeah, and, and as Heather was saying before, this is one of the things that brought together our collaboration because certainly I was struck. I mean, the lower number in the, the middle of that Venn diagram, the 50%, is the number of folks with insomnia who will typically report a chronic pain condition. But that 88% number is the number of folks with chronic pain who will report sleep problems, and this other side it's probably higher. So by themselves, each of these things are considered sort of public epidemics, right? They are very common in the popula general population. But the overlap is where we see the possibility for uh, greater improvement because these problems so rarely occur in isolation. I mean, I think what struck me um, when I started working with Fiona was just how difficult it is for folks who just have insomnia and then, you know, with the chronic pain folks and then combining those two things together, it's pretty significant. So it's, you know, it's no surprise that these, these disorders, you know, co-occur. Sleep disruption absolutely can contribute to chronic pain. I think that makes sense. But also chronic pain, it also makes intuitive sense that if you have pain at night, it's going to wake you up. You're mm -hmm. going to have fragmented sleep. You'll actually have sleep loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think with, the, with chronic pain, as we mentioned, the, it changes sleep architecture. It fragments your sleep, leads to these microarousals. Sleep disturbance, in turn, leads to increased hyperalgesia, so it's uh, increased experience of pain and reduced analgesia, greater difficulty regulating or modulating pain. What we were struck by, the more recent research in the past, let's say, eight years or so, seems to have shown that there is a disproportionate effect of sleep on pain than the reverse. Meaning, if someone has sleep problems at time one, and by the way, this research is based on more rigorously done prospective 
large sample size studies. When I say large sample size, some in the thousands or tens of thousands of people. When I say prospective long-term, sometimes a decade or more. So what these groups did was they would measure sleep problems at time one or pain problems at time one. And what they were looking for was someone had sleep, problem but no, sleep but no, problems but no pain at time one or the reverse. And then they were following them out several years, a decade or more, to see do sleep problems develop in future or do pain problems develop in future? And what they found in six of the nine studies is if you have sleep problems at time one, you are one and a half to three times more likely to have pain problems in, at some subsequent point in future. Whereas if you have pain problems at time one, that same risk does not apply. There is an increased risk, but it's not increased to the same extent, which suggests to us that sleep is having a larger effect on future pain experience than the reverse. And that, of course, highlights sleep as an obvious point of intervention. If sleep problems are leading to pain problems in future, well, maybe if we treat problems, sleep problems now, we can prevent pain problems in future. This is a little bit of an aside, um, only because <laughs> It's important to take into account when trying to improve sleep and pain, but the research is very limited and the treatment approaches are virtually non-existent, at least evidence-based treatment approaches. But circadian rhythms are a very important part, a very important aspect of our behavior for all of us. Circadian rhythms are these um, roughly 24-hour endogenous rhythms that govern much of our behavior, sleep-wake being the most obvious circadian rhythm, but rest activity, sleepiness alertness, feeding fasting, uh, physiological parameters like respiration, heart rate, blood pressure, bowel movements, hormone fluctuations, all of these fluctuate on a 24-hour rhythm. Sleep can be roughly divided into larks, hummingbirds, and owls. Larks tend to feel sleepy early, seven or eight in the evening, and then wakeful early, three to four in the morning. Hummingbirds, Probably the majority of folks are sleepy a little later, 10 to 11 in the evening, wakeful a little later, 6 to 7 in the morning. Owls feel sleepy sometime after midnight. The most common phase we see is 2 to 10, but I have seen people whose natural sleep phase is 6 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon. This is largely 50% genetic, so this is all normal sleep. What I will say, and I'll try not to spend too much time on this, but um, our environment does discriminate against night owls, right? So our world is set up for larks and hummingbirds. And if you're not awake and alert at seven o'clock, there's something, you are morally culpable. There's something wrong. That is not the way it should be. I'm not condoning this at all. I'm just pointing it out because I believe we should try to think about these things differently and create more flexible formats to accommodate our night owls. Yeah, Fiona will talk about this a little bit further, but it's yeah. interesting that we, in our groups, yeah. we're seeing a large proportion of the night owls. Yes. in our chronic pain and insomnia groups, which is really interesting. Yes, because normally the breakdown would be night owls about maybe 10 to 15%. In our last group, it was four to six. So three were definite mm -hmm. uh, evening types and one was a moderate evening type. So what does that mean? And how is that going to affect our recommendations for when they sleep or when they're active? The other thing to keep in mind, though, is circadian rhythms, as I said, govern a lot of things, including pain. Now, this is a largely underexplored area. Um, even though we've known about this for a while, but what you see on the left is a graph that shows a circadian rhythm in nociceptive <coughs> pain conditions like osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, polymyalgic or rheumatica, and on the right, a graph that shows circadian rhythms in neuropathic pain, diabetic peripheral neuropathy and uh, postherpetic neuralgia. So on the left, the way to read that, across the bottom, are the very bottom row of numbers are the uh, hours of the day, so morning to evening. And then along the side is a pain rating, a self-reported pain rating, based on 
individual pain, the mean of the individual pain rating. So 100% would be the, the mean, and then above that is a higher pain rating, below that is a lower pain rating. And what you can see in the nociceptive conditions is pain seems to be worst in the early morning um, and best in the later afternoon. So in that particular graph, it was, sorry, it was four. The peak pain was 4 a.m. and the, the lowest pain was 4 p.m. Whereas in the neuropathic pain, it seemed to be the reverse. So again, pain is measured, self-reported pain, uh, along the side, 0 to 10, pain intensity. Measured three time points, 8 a.m., uh, 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. And this is the reverse. So now pain is better in the morning at 8 a.m. and worse in the evening at 8 p.m. We're not sure what to do with this, but we do think circadian rhythms have to be taken into account as we contemplate how best to optimize outcomes for our folks with chronic pain and insomnia. Before we leave this, is that, are these daytime people or nighttime people? Oh, it doesn't. Oh, you know what? They didn't even look at that. Oh. This, is just, this, this is just a pain condition. So this is what makes it so complicated. Circadian rhythms govern lots of behaviors. So sleep, feeding, pain, and they're not necessarily in the same circadian cycle. No. So we want to talk a little bit about the, the different... Um, the treatments that are used for chronic pain and insomnia. So any type of chronic condition, technically, should be <laughs> treated from a biopsychosocial model. And the reason I say technically is because we know that a lot of these psychological and social factors, they're given a lot of lip service. I don't think a lot of patients are actually being exposed to a true biopsychosocial treatment approach. And I don't necessarily, you know, pointing fingers at everyone. I think there's a lack of resources. I think patients aren't always super interested in, you know, needing me. Um, but we know that these, these psychological and social factors matter. And they predict how well someone does, whether it's pre-surgery or just dealing with chronic pain or insomnia over time. So they really need to be taken into account as far as treatment to help patients do their best. And when I say their best, I mean function. The best way to uh, use a biopsychosocial approach is through cognitive behavioral techniques. Cognitive behavioral techniques offer several advantages, uh, which make them very user-friendly in a medical setting. They are symptom-focused time-limited, and very evidence-based. So they provide clear ways to help people reduce their symptoms in a, an efficient manner with an evidence base to support that. As a result, they're among the most well-validated and widely used of the uh, psychotherapy techniques in medical settings. They are very collaborative. So this is crucial. When patients come to see us, they're not coming to us so that we can do something to them. They are coming to us so that we can teach them things that they will then do on their own. And that is key, because I can guarantee you, and you probably all know this, if someone's not gonna follow the recommendations, not gonna try the strategies, well, not much is gonna change. Um, of course, because it's a biopsychosocial approach, of course, because with chronic pain and insomnia, there's not just the sensory component, but the cognitive and the emotional component, it's going to target unhelpful thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors that support these conditions. Um, it's going to try to help people reframe and shift their thinking around these conditions. And as it does so, it's going to increase their self-efficacy and their coping skills. I think the one, one of the things we struggle with in implementing CBT techniques is, you know, pills and procedures are very seductive. Sometimes you can get immediate relief. It is hard to compete with that. The drawback, of course, is once you stop taking the pill or once the procedure wears off, you're sort of back where you started. 
The advantage to the cognitive behavioral techniques is yes, they take longer to, for the benefits to accumulate. The benefits are more gradual, but they do accumulate. The more you practice these benefits, the more effective they become. And once you've integrated them into your lifestyle, it's actually very hard to stop using them. So with chronic pain, we're really dealing with two vicious cycles. So we've got the psychological cycle. You know, having pain is incredibly emotionally challenging. It leads to a lot of fear and frustration, which can lead to depression, catastrophic thinking. And we know that these mood, these cognitive and emotional components, our mood symptoms, can actually amplify our pain. So it keeps this vicious cycle going. But we also have the physical cycle. So if it hurts to move, a lot of patients are not going to move. And maybe they've even been told, if it hurts, don't just don't do it, which of course is dangerous because it always hurts. So then they move less, they become deconditioned, and then they get sick of it and like, you know what, I'm going to move again, and it hurts, and it just keeps this cycle going. So we're really targeting both the psychological and, and physical cycles when it comes to treatment of pain. And no surprise, there's a similar set of circles or cycles for chronic insomnia. So there is the psychological cycle where people have some nights of bad sleep, they start to become anxious, frustrated, worried about that sleep. The next day, they're not in such a great mood. As bedtime approaches, they start to worry more, that disturbs their sleep more, and the anxiety and the worry and the sleep disruption simply continue. The same with the physical vicious cycle. Um, oftentimes when people have sleep problems, they do things that they think will help, and it intuitively seem like they should help, such as spending more time in bed, but that paradoxically backfire. Spending more time in bed if you have insomnia actually makes the insomnia worse. And as they spend more time in bed, their insomnia gets worse, so they spend more time in bed, it gets worse, and there we are caught up in a vicious downward spiral as well. So with cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain, we know that it's effective, that we have small to moderate benefits on disability, mood, and catastrophic thinking more so than the pain level itself, which actually makes sense because I'm not targeting pain. I'm targeting disability. I'm targeting their mood. I'm targeting how they think about pain. CBT is the most widely studied treatment that we have for the treatment of chronic pain. It's obviously not the only psychological modality. We've got mindfulness-based stress reduction. We've got acceptance and commitment therapy. But CBT has the largest evidence base thus far. And it's really comprised of neuroscience education. So patients really do need to understand that hurt and harm are two different things. There's goal setting. So we, we want to collaborate with patients, but get them moving, get them doing things, involved in activities that are important to them. And goal setting is huge with this because, well, you know how hard it is to change a behavior, even one that you don't like. Goal setting can help with that, so I've been told. <laughs> Self-regulation, right? The struggle switch is switched on. Their nervous system, their sympathetic nervous system, it's in overdrive. So we need to teach them how to pump the brakes on their nervous system. They don't know how to do this. So we teach them different types of self-regulation strategies. And then we deal with their thoughts. So whether it's cognitive restructuring or cognitive reframing, but often the thoughts that we have about chronic pain are not accurate and they're absolutely not helpful. They're very automatic and normal, but not helpful. So we teach them how to do that. We get them moving with behavioral activation because we know motion is lotion for the joints. They've got to get moving in order to continue to move. Pleasant activities. 
What do people do when they have pain? They isolate. They cut out everything except what they have to do. So we want to introduce them to do, well, what about the things that you enjoy? What about things that bring you pleasure? You do have a medicine box in your brain, and when you're engaged in activities that are pleasurable and meaningful, you actually release chemicals that can help dampen pain. Time-based activity, they use pain as a gauge for all activities. But we're trying to change the way their brain responds to pain, so we need to use time and then slowly increase it over time. So this is not a common sense skill. It's incredibly helpful, and patients usually hate it at first until they do it, realize <laughs> it's like magic, and then they stick to it. And then communication training, because we know it affects the whole entire family system, sleep hygiene. Uh, Dr. Barwick is gonna go into a little more detail between the difference between CBTI and, and sleep hygiene. And then flare prevention, because this is a chronic disease that they have to be able to self-manage over time. So all the skills that they learn, these are self-management approaches. They do not need me after they learn how to use it. I always joke that I'm trying to work myself out of a job. CBT is also used for chronic insomnia. And I have to say, you know, we mentioned before that it is probably the most widely used uh, psychotherapy approach in medical settings. CBT for insomnia is probably the most effective instantiation of this technique. Mm -hmm. um, inevitably, when people follow it, it yields a significant reduction to total remission of symptoms in 70 to 80% of people with moderate to large effect sizes. This is one of the reasons, I mean, I've included this quote from the American College of Physicians up here. They came out with their guidelines for treating uh, adults with chronic insomnia in 2016. And their recommendation is all adult patients receive cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia as the initial treatment. That is echoed, actually not echoed, the American College of Physicians is echoing the same statement made by National Institute of Health in 2005, American Psychiatric Association in 2005, um, and just this past year, European Sleep Research Society. I mean, most major organizations are very clear on the evidence, and the evidence shows over and over again that in head-to-head -head comparisons between CBT for insomnia and medications, CBT is the more effective way to go because not only is it as effective as medication in the short term, it's more effective in the long term. The gains are sustained. You can see just by looking quickly at the components of CBT for insomnia, it looks very similar to the CBT for pain. Education, time in bed restriction is a little bit different, but it basically gets people out of bed, which could be seen as the equivalent of behavioral activation. Um, bed reassociation, I won't go into that, but self-regulation, very much like CBT for pain. Cognitive restructuring also should look similar. Behavioral activation we mentioned. Sleep hygiene, I'll talk about in just a moment. Relapse prevention is like a, a flare prevention. But you can see how much overlap there is in these treatment approaches. This is a slide showing sleep hygiene components versus CBTI. Um, sleep hygiene and CBTI are not necessarily the same thing. They are often confused. Sleep hygiene are basic lifestyle and environmental factors. Things like keep your bedroom dark, cool, and quiet. Don't eat or exercise too close to bedtime. Don't have coffee or alcohol too close to bedtime. If you have good sleep, good sleep hygiene will help maintain that sleep. If you have poor sleep hygiene, you can disrupt your good sleep. But if you have poor sleep, all the good sleep hygiene in the world is not necessarily going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. That is when you need cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And you can see on the right side that sleep hygiene is the second from last component it is far from the only component 
and not the most powerful component. Some of these other components, restricting time in bed, reassociating bed with sleep, uh, relaxation, these are effective monotherapies in and of themselves. Sleep hygiene is not. Having said that, you know, Heather and I, have, we have a constant un ongoing dialogue about the role of sleep hygiene for chronic pain patients. Mm -hmm. Because if sleep is fragmented for folks with chronic pain, if they are spending more time in light stages of sleep and more time transitioning between stages when it's easier to wake up, then their sleep environment may be especially important in protecting that sleep environment, making sure it is especially dark, cool, and quiet, making sure they have an especially comfortable sleeping service may be more crucial for this population than for other populations. That's, I think, been our experience a bit, yeah. because in the insomnia patients I work with who don't have chronic pain, sleep hygiene is rarely touched upon. Um, but for the chronic pain mm -hmm. folks, we do spend time with it. And so we want to go into some of the different treatments out there, uh, different research that has tried to address uh, chronic pain and insomnia together. So, you know, just to kind of reiterate what Fiona and I just mentioned, that there is some overlap in the cognitive behavioral therapy techniques for chronic pain and insomnia. So for education, you know, addressing the vicious cycles of chronic pain and insomnia and switching those into virtuous cycles. Behavioral activation, right? We want to recondition people, the time-based pacing and the behavioral activation. We want to get them up and moving. And then with sleep, the more you're up and moving, you're actually building sleep drive, so you're more likely to be able to sleep when you go to bed. Self-regulation, I talked about the struggle switch being switched on. We want to help teach them strategies to pump the brakes on the nervous system, get more parasympathetic activity, um, and then cognitive reframing, so identifying those unhelpful thoughts and behaviors that usually lead to avoidance. So a lot of overlaps in the CBT techniques for chronic pain and insomnia. And that's why we're not going to go over these studies in detail with a couple of exceptions, but that's why several groups to look, took a look at this overlap, both in terms of the comorbidity of the conditions and the shared treatment techniques, and thought, okay, let's see what happens if we improve sleep in folks who have chronic pain. That's what those first five studies attempted to do. They took a CBT protocol for insomnia, they implemented it in folks with chronic pain, and what they found, we'll switch back and forth between these two slides, what they found in those top two lines, across all groups, uh, or across all studies, sleep improved significantly and pain did not. There was a trend toward reduced scores on pain interference and pain disability, uh, but nothing significant. So that forced people to go back to the drawing board and consider the possibility that maybe if we want to see change in pain outcomes, we can't target sleep only, and because we've got all these shared techniques, we can target sleep and pain simultaneously, so let's try that. That's what these, the three studies in the bottom there, the Pigeon uh, 20, et al. 2012 study, the Tang et al. 2012 study, and the Vitiello et al. 2013 study did. These were very different studies, different study designs, different sample sizes, and they yielded very different results. For the, the Pigeon, the study done by Pigeon and colleagues was a very ambitious study. Um, with a, it was a pilot study, so it had a smaller sample size, about 21 people. There were four treatment groups. There was a CBT for insomnia, a CBT for pain, a CBT for pain and insomnia, and a weightless control. So there was no more than six participants in each group. So it was clearly underpowered to show, to show effects, and that is what happened. Interestingly, all the groups, <laughs> including the weightless control, showed improvement in sleep. Uh, and I hate when that happens. I know. Although it was significant only for uh, 
a, a measure of insomnia severity, which is the insomnia severity index, and total wake time. Other, but they improved across all sleep measures, only significantly a couple. They improved on pain disability scores, but not significantly. <laughs> no group showed improvement on the multidimensional pain inventory. So disappointing, but like I said, a very ambitious study to do. Um, and we certainly need, and a very rigorously done study as well. I think we'll spend a bit more time talking about the Tang and Vitiello studies because for our purposes, they illustrate some of the questions that Heather and I have as we continue to go forward developing and refining our own protocol for treating sleep and pain. So Tang et al. also had a small sample size, about 20 people, but there were only two treatment groups. Their reasoning is, we already know CBT for insomnia works, let's not waste our time. We already know CBT for pain works, let's not waste our time. Let's focus on a, a combined intervention, CBT for pain and insomnia, and let's contrast it to a symptom monitoring condition where people just track their sleep and pain symptoms for the treatment period. They actually showed large improvements, significant improvements, large effect sizes on their primary sleep measure, which was that insomnia severity index, um, and also on their primary pain outcome measure, which was the brief pain inventory pain interference. So significant improvement in the CBT for pain and insomnia group compared to that symptom monitoring control group and large effect sizes. Additionally, they showed significant improvement in large effect sizes. When I say large, I mean one, two, three. Uh, so Cohen's, one, Cohen's uh, effect size one to three, which is, that's a very nice effect size. I wish I could get some of these. Um, so they also showed improvement on secondary uh, pain and sleep measures. So things like anxiety and preoccupation with sleep, uh, pre-sleep cognitive arousal, dysfunctional beliefs about sleep, pain-related beliefs about sleep, pain catastrophizing in sleep. And remember, this is a small sample size. So the results are very, very impressive. Um, Vitiel et al. did a very ambitious study as well. Large sample size, 367 people, three groups. Uh, one was a CBT for pain and insomnia, one a CBT for pain, and one education-only education -only group. Once again, the CBT for pain and insomnia group showed improvements in sleep compared to the other two groups, but no significant improvement in pain outcomes. Let's, we can go to the next slide, let's unpack this a bit more because I think the differences in between these two studies illustrate perhaps some of the directions in which we need to go to create better hybrid treatments for chronic pain and insomnia. So first, the study design. So Tang had, Tang and colleagues had a very a smaller sample size, Vitiel and colleagues had a larger sample size, but I think Vitiel and colleagues might have done themselves, not a disservice, but their study was so well designed that actually all their treatment groups were seen as highly credible. And so they probably undermined or undercut their ability to find significant results because everyone was showing some improvement. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have active control conditions, because that is, that is something we want to do. However, as we're trying to figure out what the best techniques are to include and in what order for these treatment approaches, it might, be, it might make more sense to focus on an active intervention and something like a symptom monitoring control. The population. Vitiel and colleagues, they had a lovely sample size, but the population was not that unwell. The for example, the insomnia severity index, normal is less a score of less than eight. Higher scores mean more insomnia. Their, coming into the study, their sample size had an 11 on the insomnia severity index. That doesn't even meet criteria, <coughs> diagnostic criteria for insomnia. It wasn't their fault. There was regression to the mean between screening and baseline. 
So participants met criteria at screening, and by the time they got to the study, sleep had gotten a little better, so they were no longer as distressed. So there was not a lot of area to improve, and the same, was, same went for the, the pain measures as well, whereas in Tang et al. study, their incoming uh, ISI uh, score was 22. A lot more room for improvement. So I think that's the other thing. We probably want to look for a wide range of severity. I mean, we want to look for more folks with more severe pain and sleep problems if we want to uh, try and get better results. The outcome measures that are chosen, I think we were both struck by how Tang and colleagues, um, they developed a very thoughtful integration of the treatment for pain and insomnia. And in fact, they actually included, so the time for these treatments was roughly the same. Vitiel and colleagues, it was six one and a half hour sessions conducted weekly. Tang and colleagues, uh, four two hour sessions conducted weekly. So roughly equivalent times, eight versus nine hours. But Tang and colleagues included uh, a module for addressing pain catastrophizing and a module for reversing mental defeat. The specific thoughts and beliefs around pain that can get in the way of um, people functioning more effectively. And then the outcome measures they chose, the catastrophizing in pain scale, the anxiety, uh, the um, pain disability, these were outcomes that were a direct, uh, a direct result of the intervention that they developed. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that they, they got better effect sizes and better results than Vitiello. Um, because Vitiello and colleagues, the pain measure they chose was the um, global pain scale, pain severity measure, and Heather's already talked about how pain severity ratings don't really shift that much. It's the, the functional ratings, the disability ratings, the interference from pain ratings that, that change. So outcome measures need to be chosen carefully. Populations need to have a high enough level of, of pain and insomnia symptoms to actually be able to show improvement. The catastrophizing in pain, you want to talk about that? Because that's something that I'm not as familiar with, the need for. Yeah, I mean, we know that with uh, the pain catastrophizing scale, I mean, pain catastrophizing has been studied widely for decades, and we know it's a huge predictor of who is going to go on to develop chronic pain, but then also, once you have chronic pain, if you have higher levels of catastrophizing, you rate your pain severity as being higher, um, and it definitely is associated with disability. So how you think about your pain, whether it's rumination, magnification, or feelings of helplessness around pain, definitely makes a difference in how well you do function-wise. So we care about pain catastrophizing, and it fits in perfect with these CBT protocols because what are we doing? We're looking at thoughts, unhelpful thoughts and beliefs about pain. We're catching it, we're checking it, we're changing it, and helping them to you know, have more adaptive that's kind of judgmental, more helpful thoughts about their pain. Mm -hmm. So pain catastrophizing needs to be part of both the treatment and the outcome measures. I'm going to skip to follow-up for a moment. This is very interesting. Um, Vitiel and colleagues, I mentioned, that sleep uh, showed improvement. By the way, they had a, these, it was pre- to post-improvement, plus a nine-month follow-up for Vitiel and colleagues. So sleep improved pre- to post and at nine-month follow-up. And at 18-month follow-up, washed out. So no improvements in anything, sleep or pain, at 18 months. So they very cleverly went back and re-examined their data from a different perspective. They identified sleep responders across all three treatment conditions. So they didn't care what you were doing, whether it was education-only control, CBT for pain, CBT for pain insomnia, they didn't care. If you were a sleep responder, meaning you were showing 30% or greater improvement in your sleep from pre- to post-treatment, you were a sleep responder. If you didn't show that, you were a non-responder. And then they looked at your sleep and pain scores nine months and 18 months later. 
And they found not only continued sustained and sometimes increased improvements in sleep for sleep responders versus non-responders, but improvements in the pain outcome measures, including the pain severity measure. Now, these improvements were tiny because, as I said, the population was not that unwell to begin with. The scores were not that high. So we're talking like a point change. It was a large sample size, which is probably why it achieved significance. Nonetheless, it was very interesting because the change in pain scores lagged behind the, the improvement in sleep. So sleep improved first, and then pain started to change, which suggests that we, if we are going to be looking at outcome measures, we might have to take into account longer follow-up times to actually see improvements in pain. And this is not simply something I would be doing from an insomnia perspective, but I think it's something we definitely have, we're thinking about it from the uh, treating insomnia and chronic pain perspective. Well, and I th this, all of this information, I think, has raised more questions than answers uh, for, for Fiona and I. But what it, it's allowed us to do is over the past year, we developed our All About Pain and Sleep group. So we took what we believed, you know, N of two experts, <laughs> what was most important from the chronic pain CBT and the insomnia uh, CBT protocols, and we combined them. And so we put together a six-week group, two hours in length, uh, or a six-week group, two hours um, a week, mm -hmm. and we rolled it out. And we've run two cohorts so far, yeah. and we've learned some really interesting things. The first, the, what's, what's really interesting to us is the first cohort replicated results of those initial studies yeah. where we just did CBT for insomnia in pain, and sleep improves, and pain does not. We did, we did that. <laughs> so Live we, and learn, people. Yeah, we've, we've made some changes since then, and pain, addressing the, the pain has become a, a bigger component. We're interweaving the insomnia components in a more integrated manner, we hope. And I think with this second iteration, we have seen some change, some improvement mm -hmm. in pain scores. Um, so we're hoping to continue that trend. Circadian timing, we have not incorporated that into our treatment protocol, but we will. We ha from our perspective, we have to. We don't know. We do have people fill out questionnaires to identify as an evening or a morning type. We haven't yet incorporated that into their sleep scheduling or activity scheduling, but I think that's going to be a, a, mm -hmm. what we'll be doing with this third iteration. Well, we're even thinking with with circadian timing and whether they're, you know, lark, hummingbird, or owl, could that help determine when they would be doing their exercise? Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, things that the research is still not there. But these are the things that as we run these groups and we look at our data and we look at other people's data that we're thinking about, like how might this, how does this all tie together and how can we use this information to help our patients have the best window for exercise, um, even dosing of medications, not that you know, we tell them when to dose their medications because we are psychologists and we don't do that, but we're thinking about these things um, as we continue to change our protocol, <laughs> evolve our protocol. I'll be going on for at least another year or so. Um, this final point, the sleep hygiene we talked about earlier, how it might be especially important for uh, uh, folks with chronic pain, that their sleep environment be protected. All of these, as Heather said, we are left with more answers, I mean more questions than answers, and so we certainly welcome people's input and feedback and suggestions as if anyone is doing this work. Mm -hmm. We would love to talk to you. Um, we're sorry we forgot to include the, we have a list of references, but we forgot to include the references in some of the slides. So, for example, that um, Circadian Rhythms and Pain was from the Gilron 2014 article. But, uh, but yeah, thank you very much for your attention and attendance.
That's such a great question. So I think if you can, oh, I'm sorry, she was asking how can you, how can a physician convince their patient to see a psychologist? So, right, this would be worth the admission to the conference if I had a great answer for this. Um, I think from time one that you meet with the patient, that if you start delivering the message that, you know, this, this is best treated from a biopsychosocial model and, and give them some of the evidence that you know of, of these psychosocial factors that predict pain. They do not have to be depressed, like diagnosed as having depression, anxiety, or PTSD to benefit from pain psychology. So if, if you can figure out, uh, my talk this morning was all about the carrot, right? Like you want to get back to doing these things with your family. I know that working with a pain psychologist could actually teach you this time-based pacing that does exactly that. But what you can't do is you can't wait until they've failed everything else and they're like, you know what, you got to see the psychologist because then they think that you think they're nuts. Mm-hmm. And it's, then they think that there's something wrong with them and that you no longer want to help them or that oh, they're a problem. So I think the timing of like, the sooner you can have these conversations and the more you can bring in some of the evidence that is out there and then the belief of, I know this helps, it helps so many of my patients. I think that can be incredibly helpful. Or if they're not willing to see a pain psychologist, there's a lot of great free resources where they can start, you know, there's different YouTube videos, there's self-help books that can sort of plant the seed, or like the American Chronic Pain Association support group. (laughs) I have a list of resources I can send you. If you email me, it's just hking at Stanford. I'll send you YouTube videos, books, anything you